Amen. When the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Church, how many of us can say that this morning? Say amen. Amen. You know, a lot of times it's really hard to tell what something is worth. I'm, um, I'm not a good shopper, and it's, that's the primary reason why I'm not a good shopper. I, I haven't done enough shopping to compare things and to, and to know that this is worth more than that, that this is a better price than that. I, uh, I'm one of those guys that just, if I want something, I just make a beeline in the store and get it, and I come right back out, and uh, if I don't know where it is, I just do it out. In Jesus' name, amen. So sometimes I need a little advice on what things are worth. Um, I went and I bought my wife's wedding ring, for example. I just bought the one I liked. I, I, the man couldn't talk to me much. I looked in the cabinet. I said, I like that one. And I bought it. I've since learned that there's a whole lot to know about diamonds. Take this illustration, for example. I, you know, this would have done me a whole lot of good, right? Uh, because... Uh, I didn't even know I was supposed to bring vegetables. You know, I didn't know all this carrot stuff. And I just went and got the one I thought was pretty. But, you know, just look at that. It's a lot to know about diamonds. Apparently the size is one thing to cut, the color and all that stuff. Now, what I do know a little bit about is baseball cards. And this bothers me because I had this card right here at some point. I had this card. And that's what it's worth right now. I, I probably did this with it, to tell you the truth. I really did. I, I probably, I, I, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I, honestly, I didn't really like American League stuff. So any American League ball players I got, I'd, I'd trade those away. I'd put them in my spokes. I'd shoot them with a the BB gun. I just thought any league where you can't get the pitcher to hit, you know, it's no good for me. That's the way I thought about it. So when I had a lot of baseball cards growing up, and, you know, you'd find that a magazine would say it was worth something. And you'd go in this store and say, hey, this book says this is worth this. And they wouldn't give you that price. And it was really upsetting. So you got to know what something is worth. You take something like this object right here. I have no clue what that is worth. None. But I know middle school boys talk about it all the time. And they were surprised to learn. It's like, you know. Mr. Tim, do you like Fortnite? I was like, uh, no, I don't even know what it is. And they start telling me, and I'm like, oh, let me tell you, I don't care what it is. But they, they love this. Anybody know how much this game system thing is worth? What would you pay for that? Anybody know? I truly don't know. So you just said how much it's worth to y'all, right? Pretty much nothing. <laughs> how much is that game worth? 60, somebody's bought that for a grandchild or a child or something, haven't you? 60 bucks. Guess how much it's worth to Tim? Zero. Now, somebody likes it, right? You need to know what things are worth. And as we press on toward our week of revival services, I think one of the most important questions we could ask our li in our whole lives is, what is Jesus worth? Is he worth our time, talent, and treasure? Is he worth our sacrifice? Is he worth, I mean, just think about it. Is he worth our messing up our schedules to attend revival that week? Is he worth it? And I think I want to look at a passage today, Matthew chapter 26, where a lot of people assess the worth of Jesus. And at the end, I want to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to ask us a question. I believe the Holy Spirit is pressing into us. What's Jesus worth to you? 
Matthew chapter 26, verse number 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why waste? Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, listen to this church, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Father, as we open your word, you open our understanding. You open our hearts. You give us grace You give us unmerited favor, not just to understand these words, but to meet with you. And Father, I pray that in the coming few moments, you give us a true vision for the value of Jesus. Give us a vision that causes us to see him for what he's worth and to make the appropriate response. In Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. To set the scene, I think we should... We should consider, we should consider this truth, right? Because Jesus predicts his death, we must understand he controls it. Now, you're not going to feel like that's a big point in this story at this place right here, but it just is. You hear all kinds of people plotting, and we look back historically, and we'll say the Romans killed Jesus, or we'll say the Jews killed Jesus. I want you to understand something. Jesus was laying down his life. He predicts it. He controls it. Now, who he allows to be participants in God's grand scheme, that's a whole other story. But I think it's important to understand that it is the great shepherd who is giving his life voluntarily, and it is the good father who is striking this shepherd for our good. That's an important thing to look at. To see how we got to this place, let's do a really quick review, right? Let's do first, this is not on the screen, let's do a quick contextual review. Two weeks ago, we talked about the attitude for revival, and that attitude is the attitude of humility. Last week, we talked about the actions of revival, and that action ought to be prayer, a prayer that truly depends on God to do more than we ever could. Today, we want to talk about the reason or or what should be the reason that makes us to react to God in such a way that we get revival. And that reason, friends, is Jesus. I want to go ahead and give the end of the sermon up front. The reason is Jesus. But if you want to see the context to how we got right here in Matthew 26, you got to look back. You got to see Jesus has been talking about this in, in the gospel of Matthew all along. 
He, he, he told him the bridegroom would be removed from the party. He, he told him that he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. In other words, he's saying the, the religious and authority structure is going to do stuff to me. He, he told him he's going to rise from the dead. He told him that, that uh, somebody would betray him. He told him that the reason he would give his life would be a ransom. So he says, I'm going to give my life, and here's the reason. Then he told him the parable, one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures. He told him the parable of the vineyard where they kept sending people, kept sending people, kept sending people. And finally, the, the vineyard owner sent his beloved son, and they even killed the beloved son. And that was a story of how God sends prophets after prophet after prophet, and Israel kills prophet after prophet after prophet. And now what is the, the, the vineyard of the whole earth has sent his son, and what is Israel going to do to the vineyard owner's son? You're going to kill him. So you get to this story right here, and you, you see all these people plotting, making evaluations of the life of Jesus. But I want you guys to see that this does not come as any surprise whatsoever. When you see these religious leaders plotting, it's, 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 it's what's been going on all along. When you see Jesus dying, it's what he's been planning all along. In other words, men are always doing wrong, and God is always doing right. But to make this story come alive, let's open it up a little bit through John chapter 11. John chapter 11 gives us a few more details. If you see John eleven forty-seven, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, if you go look at the context there, Jesus had upset some of the religious leaders. And they saw, man, this guy has got, he's got everybody behaving in a way we don't like. So they call an impromptu, an informal council, you might say. Then verse 48 tells us, he says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, friends, I want you to see the core problem of what, of what Jesus is doing in their view. In these religious leaders' view, what Jesus is doing is he's taking power away from them. Wow. That's one of the most upsetting things in, in the church, in the local church, is when Jesus exercises his authority and takes away power from us. It's also the, the thing that most scared me in my personal life. I felt like if I let Jesus be the Lord of my life, then I wouldn't have the permission to cuss people out and get in fights and take care of myself, that I would have to, I would have to be meek and mild. And I didn't like that. I can relate to these guys being nervous about Jesus usurping authority because I, I didn't like it in my personal life. But it goes a little deeper. If you look at the next couple of verses, one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's telling, he's telling all, his, all his buddies, right? All right, one of you deacons, one of you deacons, just walk into the deacons meeting this morning. Just walk in, and the first thing you say, y'all don't know nothing. See how that goes over. But if this was North Carolina, what did Caiaphas just say? Y'all don't know nothing. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So, so back up one, Mackenzie, back up one. Look at what they were nervous about. He's going to take us out of authority, and he's going to cause the Romans to mess up our nation. We got a good deal going here. We're conquered, but we get to do a lot of what we want to do. So what does Caiaphas tell him? Caiaphas says, you guys don't get it. It's not just that you're going to be removed from power. Our whole system is going to be shifted. 
I want to tell y'all, this is the core revival. The core revival is that God wants to come in and shift the system. He wants to take over lordship. He wants to be the boss of not just your Sunday morning, but your Sunday afternoon through the next Sunday morning. He wants to upend our lives, but not just so he can upend our lives. The point isn't just to upset us. It's so that his rule and reign would overwhelm not just our sin, but would also overwhelm our idea of possibilities. We're limited in our understanding. He's unlimited in his ability. Think about that. So these old Jewish boys, they were just upset. (laughs) Their nerves were tore up. They said, they said uh, what, what is this Jesus guy doing? He's going to knock us out of power. He's going to get our nation messed up. So you go back to Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5, and that makes that meeting come a little bit more back to life. Let's look at that again. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. All right. Hold it right there. Doesn't that John 11 passage open this up a little bit more? Why are they plotting to arrest him and put him to death? Because he's going to knock him out of power and he's going to upend things. That's what they think. They don't see him as a deliverer. They see him as a detractor. This is a misappropriation of value when it comes to who Jesus really is. Don't miss this church. They're not seeing who Jesus is. And so what is probable is they will miss out on what Jesus really does. And that's what faces us today. If we miss out on who Jesus really is, like if we just treat him like a vending machine, every time I have, I want something, I'll go to Jesus. If we just treat him like that, we'll miss out that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And and like one lady used to tell me, he don't just own the cattle, he owns the hills too. Somebody say amen. amen. When you misappropriate the value, person, purpose of the Lord Jesus It's not that you'll only miss out on something in your life. You're missing out on all that is in his life. So when you see that in verse 4, it says they applauded together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. You got to go back to John 11 and, and look at what was really going on. What were they really afraid of? Ah, but they have a plan. They said, let's don't do this during the feast. Because he's been doing stuff and a lot of people like him. And if we do this, there might be an uprising. So you see this? They fear the reality of Jesus, and they also fear the opinion of people. One of the worst places we could be as the people of God is to live in this reverse world. What we really need to do is fear God and love people, not hate God and fear people. See how we get this backwards a whole lot? So our passage shows us something really critically important. The council resolved that that Jesus should die. But it also shows us, again, that Jesus is the master of history. He predicts his death, so he's the one that's going to complete his death. What do these leaders say? Let's kill him after the Passover. What's Jesus say? Y'all going to do it now. Why? Why is the big question. Why is Jesus fast-forwarding this deal? Because they were celebrating the, celebrating the Passover. Don't forget the significance of the Passover. The nation of Israel, the whole people, all of the descendants of Jacob and Joseph, they were caught in captivity and slavery in cruel Egypt. And he, and he sends the death angel, and the death angel kills all the firstborn in every household that was not marked by the blood on the doorpost. 
If, you, if your house wasn't marked, the death angel visited. So what are they celebrating? They're celebrating that the death angel visited, but he passed over the people of faith and set them free. Y'all, are y'all with me, church? Say amen if you're with me. Amen. This is the whole scope of the scripture coming down to this moment. So Jesus says, y'all ain't going to wait you after Passover because the Passover was powerful substance in the moment, but it was a more powerful symbol for the future. And now the powerful symbol for the future is really here, the powerful truth for the future rather. In other words, I'm going to give all of mankind, all of mankind, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who wants to be set free from the grips of slavery of sin and the master of death, Satan, anybody who wants to be set free, I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to shed my blood. And if they'll apply that blood, if they'll apply that blood by faith, then guess what? The death angel will pass over them. So substance is always more powerful than symbols. Now, I'm not going to pick on you, okay? I'm not, honest. Who in here this morning is wearing a, a cross, necklace, bracelet, ring, something? Who's wearing a cross? Raise your hand. Raise your hand high. Beautiful. Now, isn't it true that the real cross of Jesus is more powerful than the symbol of the cross? Isn't it true? Don't we know that? So you look at the Passover, and while that was real when it happened, this, this blood, this blood of Jesus is infinitely more powerful than that blood of that lamb in Egypt. Now, why is this important? Because in a way, the Pharisees are right. What value do they give to the life of Jesus? What value do they give? They say Jesus is worth more to us dead than alive. That's what they basically say. We need to get this guy out of the way. But in a way, they are right. He's worth more to everyone dead than alive. So what does God do? God uses the wicked schemes of man and accomplishes the mighty work of God. But before we close down this section, let me give you a sub-sermon. I want to give you guys a sub-sermon. I know everybody's really excited, right? How many sermons are you going to preach? Four or five. Buckle up. Hang on. Look at your neighbor and tell them, it'll be okay. Tell them. Some of y'all don't believe it. It'll be all right. Here's the sub-sermon. What you see in the one case is the Pharisees, the chief priests, and, and honestly, there were less Pharisees. There was more of the council here. That's a matter for another sermon, another detail. They show us how power should not be used. Power, authority, position in their case was for self-preservation and self-promotion. Self-preservation. So, so misused power says, what can I get out of this and how can I stay, stay safe? Now, if you'll allow me, let me read this passage from 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Listen to this. Re- read verse 2 with me. You ready? Read it. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God will have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Verse 3 says, now, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see there in verse 3, the opposite of what the, uh, the leaders of Israel were doing. They, they look for, for, for protection and promotion. How can I be safe and how can I get what I want? 
Now, let me give a word to the leaders in the house. Let me give a word to the leaders in the house. Whether it's your church or in the community or in your family or your workplace, a business, I, I, I don't care. Godly leadership principles count everywhere. Somebody say amen. amen. Any daddies in the house, say amen. amen. Any mamas in the house, say amen. amen. Any grannies? Amen. Any grandpas? You're all leaders. Anybody in here love Jesus? Amen. You're all leaders. And if you're a leader in the kingdom of God, then we do the opposite of what these guys were doing when they wanted to slay Jesus. We do the opposite. We don't protect ourselves just to stay comfortable, and we don't promote ourselves just to get comfortable. A real kingdom leader watches over those who are under their care. They're not motivated. They're, they are motivated by God's call and God's love, not merely by duty, not merely by guilt. They are eager to serve, not eager for personal gain or profit. Now, somebody thinks you, thinks you hear me saying, don't pay the preacher. You ain't hearing me. But I don't know nobody that ought to be getting rich off the gospel. I'm, I'm being serious as a heart attack. I don't know anybody that ought to be making millions off the gospel. And if they are, they ought to be making it to, making it to give away. Somebody say amen. amen. How in the world are you going to make, are you gonna make, something off, make millions off of something that, 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 that God gave his son to die for your sin for? I mean, think about that. And a leader sets its tone by their examples, not by their commands. You see that? <laughs> you know, like... Uh, I, I have been known to drive a bit too fast, and uh, God's not done with me. Somebody say amen. But my, my eldest child, who is now 18, got on my nerves when she started learning them road signs. She would see a sign and say, oh, daddy, your numbers are higher than that sign says. Or I would come to this one four-way intersection over in, uh, between Hurdle Mills and Roseville, and I, I'd run it every time. And she'd go, the red round one means stop. <laughs> and, you know, you want to say, hush your mouth up. But you can't because she got you. And so I started telling, me, telling her, well, when you get your license, you just showed me how to do it. Well, I'll have you know she's one of the safest, most cautious, law-abiding drivers I've ever met in my life. She's killing me. My daughter is a better leader in how you should drive for me than I ever was for her. Does that make sense, church? So that's a sub-sermon. Let's don't miss that the sub-sermon brings us to some understanding. These guys were given authority. They were given position. They were given power. And they misused it and abused it. And the core issue that reveals it is that they misvalued Jesus. And I wager to say that any of us that are misusing authority, power, position, and purpose in our life right now, the core of it is because we're, we're not valuing Jesus the right way. So we come to the conclusion of this first part. What worth has the Jewish leadership assigned Jesus? They say he's more, more to us dead than alive. And they don't know they mean dead for the sins of the world. They mean get this guy out of our way. And some of us live very practically like that. Let me just get Jesus out of the way while I do this one thing, and then we'll bring him back in the room for the next thing. We live in pockets of faith, not a life of faith. 
Well, I, I am praying for a revival that will see us make Jesus Lord over every single situation and area and attitude of our entire lives. Secondly, I want us to see this. Just like that example is given to us, a sermon of understanding is preached by the example of sacrifice. Now, what do I mean by that? You saw where Jesus is anointed at Bethany. I love this story. This lady comes in, and what does she do? She anoints Jesus with all that she has. She literally gives what's, you know, like a year's pay. But, but it's not the dollar amount, because some people make $10,000 a year, and some people make $100,000 a year. The point was, she gave a lot. She sacrificed. Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, the woman is not named, but in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 11, Brother John tells us it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And so we might say, how did Mary learn to value Jesus in this way? I won't go there. <laughs> I'll save one of those sub-sermons for some other Sunday. But don't you remember that story where we love to point out Martha, you know, and I always sort of hear that story in the voice of Medea. I can't lie. You know, like Martha's Medea coming into the room and going, Jesus, Lord, get this woman to help me in the kitchen. And Jesus wisely says, he doesn't say preparing food and working in the kitchen is not important. What he says is, what he says in essence is, Martha, your, your service is flowing out of duty. Your service is not flowing out of devotion. You feel like you got to do this. It's not flowing out of sitting in my feet. That's where Mary learned the value of Jesus, sitting at his feet. Where else did Mary learn the value of Jesus? She saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead. Whoa. So it's no wonder here in Matthew 26 that when some value Jesus is better dead than alive, someone else says, I'm going to give him the best I have to give him. You see the difference right there? There, I, I wanted to throw this up here, throw a different, uh, 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 the New Living Translation, the New Living Paraphrase up here. People begin to object. They see Mary doing this, and they feel like it's a waste. Now, wait a minute. Hold on. Do you know why they feel like it's a waste? Because they don't know how valuable Jesus is, but she does. So they ask, ask a question. Why do you, I mean, Jesus asked the question. Why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Or I like, I like how it says it in the New Living Translation. Why are you giving this woman a hard time? I bet you somebody in this room, I want to encourage somebody today. I want to speak a word. I believe this is from the Holy Spirit, and I don't even know who it's for. Some of y'all have, somebody in this room probably has a spouse or a child or a co-worker, sibling, maybe a parent, maybe, maybe, maybe just a close friend who they, they see you doing a lot of things to serve the Lord. And they sort of, they sort of give you those low-key comments about it. Why are you doing all that? Why are you doing all that? And I, I wish they could hear Jesus saying to them right now, why are you giving them a hard time? Why are we responding to Jesus with faith? Why do we give our tithes and offerings? Why do we serve? Why do all those grown folks come and do all that work for that stew in the name of those young people? It doesn't make sense. I'm sure they had something better to do. 
Why, why are they doing all that? Because they see the worth of Jesus. Church, when you see the worth of Jesus, don't let people's questions knock you off of your commitments. Somebody say amen. When you see the worth of Jesus, everybody won't get what you're doing, but you get who you're serving. Somebody give me one. Y'all got to get warmed up on me this morning. So they... They make an objection. Why are we doing all this? Well, here's a note about the poor. <laughs> Another sub-sermon. <laughs> we, should, we should realize their position. They didn't have a lot of money. The disciples didn't. And, and we learn, and, and if you look at the story in Matthew and in John, you'll see that Judas led the complaint. And we know from from John chapter 12, verse 6, that Judas was a thief. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute, there's a missed opportunity. If she gives that to Jesus, I can't steal it. And we also know that the disciples didn't really understand what was going on. So let's give them a little bit of a break, perhaps except for Judas. They were poor guys who didn't understand what was going on. But Mary knew better than they did. Mary knew better than they did exactly what she was doing. But consider what the Old Testament says about poverty. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. There's a, there's a fantastic benevolent system unfold for us in the Old Testament. Maybe we should study that sometimes. It's fantastic. But Jesus is quoting a verse saying, you'll always have the poor with you. In other words, you guys are objecting, but this is not against the poor. You ready for this? This is not against the poor. It's for the king. Here's what Mary understood. Mary understood he was king, and so Mary anointed him for death. She was preparing him for burial. She was preparing him for burial. It's not that the situation with the poor is hopeless. It's just that it's endless. And it's not that the situation with the poor should be ignored. It's that the position of the king should be celebrated. Can I say that again? It's not that the position, excuse me, it's not that the condition of the poor should be ignored, but the position of the king should be recognized. In other words, somebody's saying, we got people hungry. Why should we give for the gospel in other nations? Why should we give to the Annie Armstrong offering? Why should we give to the mission of this church? Why? Because you see who the king is and you want people to know this king. It's not that we ignore the condition of the poor. It is that we promote the, the, the reality of the king to a world that needs to know about him. Church say amen. amen. That's why we give to missions. That's why we give ourselves to him. It's not so we ignore other things. It's so that we promote what is most important. Seeing the time, let me move quickly to my third and final point. Go ahead. I got to go, man. No, back up right there. Right there. What worth did, G did Mary assign Jesus? He's worth everything I have. I'm going to tell you. I can only tell you by testimony. I stand with Mary on this. Jesus is worth everything to me. He's worth everything to me. I don't have any arenas of my life that I want to hold back from him. I probably do hold some things back, but I want him to show me that. I want to repent. I want him to be the Lord of my time, talent, and treasure. I want him to be the Lord of my mind. I want him to be the Lord of my affections. I believe Jesus is worth everything. But we have to consider one more case. 
Thirdly and lastly, we see that limited understanding and selfish ambition misappropriates value. What did I just say? (laughs) That's fancy words for saying, look at what Judas did. Judas sold him out. What was his motivation? If we were to look at his motivation, some, some say they called him, some scholars, I don't know, some scholars say they called him Judas Iscariot because Iscari means to have a dagger. In other words, he was a revolutionary and he felt like Jesus wasn't going to kick the Romans out, so he wanted to do something to push the issue. That is some pretty positive thinking for Judas. In the minimum, we know from John 12, he's a, he's a thief. And in the maximum, in the maximum, we understand that he was used by the devil. What are his motivations? In the minimum, he's misguided. And in the maximum, he's a betrayer of sovereign God visiting us in the flesh. We do know this, that from Matthew 26, 16, we know this, that from the moment that he got the money, he started watching for the right time to betray him. And what did he do it for? He did it for 30 pieces of silver. Look at 30 pieces of silver in the Old Testament. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Or perhaps this verse here. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the house of the Lord to the potter. Now back up for me, Mackenzie. Do you guys see what's going on here? They said 30 pieces of silver is the value of the lowest human being's life, a slave. That's what that does. Now Zechariah says, when they said my life was worth something, they said it was worth the price of a slave. You see that? What Judas has done has put the value of 30 pieces of silver on Jesus' head. And Jesus, excuse me, Judas has basically said, I assign Jesus the value of a slave. Isn't that something? The problem is not that 30 pieces of silver is not a nice sum. The problem is that the prophet Zechariah and the Savior Jesus Christ are given the value of slaves. In other words, they're they're considered the least among humanity. Is that a misappropriation of the value of Jesus, friends? Is it? Did Judas get it wrong? What did those what did those religious leaders say? They said he's worth more to us dead than alive. What did Mary say? Mary says he's worth everything. What does Judas say? He's worth slave price. He's just worth slave price. But the real question this morning is not what Jesus is worth. The real question is what value do I place on Jesus? You see that church? The real, the real, so you, you know, how, how many of you guys, be honest, be honest and raise your hand. Even if you mean it for a gift, how many of you guys are going to play, pay 60 bucks for Fortnite? I might. I might. I might pay $60 for Fortnite. Just me? Some of y'all had already bought it, so I know you're fibbing. Thank you, Mackenzie. Me and you, the only honest man in the house. How many of you guys are going to pay a hundred and some thousand dollars for Reggie Jackson's card? How many of y'all would give 
Be honest now. How many of y'all would give $5 to go back in time and ride that bicycle with that baseball card on it? <laughs> How many of you men have bought some diamonds for your, for your lady? Any of you men? I have. Turns out I got her a pretty cheap one. I just thought it was pretty. I didn't know. Sorry, dear. See, all those things have what you call a subjective worth. You have to decide what they're worth to you. You walk in a store and a guy says, it's worth $10,000 to me. You go, not to me, partner. (laughs) Jesus has an objective worth. He is the father's beloved son in whom he's well pleased. He's the, he's the first and the last. He's the bright and morning star. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one that spoke the world into existence, and he upholds it by the word of his power. It's not what Jesus is worth. He is worth, he's invaluable to the Father. So what did he do? He took the treasure of heaven to pay for the trash of earth. And what man valued a slave, father valued the king. It's not what is he worth, it's what is he worth to you. Is he worth your surrender? Is he worth your living? Is he worth your attention? Is he worth your witness? Is he worth a complete turnover of your life? We sing a song at East Rock, and the song always, always, always makes me want to cry. Because he keeps asking these questions, is he worthy of this? And at, at the end of the song, you get to just answer jubilantly, he is. He is. Theresa Baptist Church, if you ask me, is Jesus worthy of your best, your all? I say he is. Is he worthy of this? He is. And if we're going to get revival, uh, he's going to have to be more important than, than, than our hobbies and our habits. He's going to have to be more important than our, our, our promotion of self and our protection of comfort. Jesus is going to have to be that treasure hidden in the field where we say, I want the field so I can get the treasure. I'll take the whole package, God. The question is not, is he worth something? The question is, what is he worth to you? So I ask you this morning during our time of invitation, I think it's living for Jesus. Is that right? Somebody help me. Oh, man, I love that one. Jesus, during our time of invitation, you let God search you. There could be a lot of decisions here this morning. Some of them could be so intensely personal, you just get down on your knees and talk with Jesus about them. Some of them need to be public. Somebody in here has believed on the Lord Jesus, but you haven't been baptized. Come and be seen being buried and risen again with him. Some of you guys are withholding your membership from this local church, even though God's calling you to it. Perhaps somebody in this place needs to be saved. You need to come and believe on Jesus. You've seen his value. You know that that blood given is enough for your sin. That life raised is what's going to give you life. And you need to give yourself to God by faith in Jesus Christ. This is, we call it the time of decision because it's the time where the Holy Spirit is coming and he's speaking to you and he's wanting you to agree with him. I decide to follow Jesus, no turning back. Why? Because he led me to the decision. So after we pray, we'll stand and sing Jesus is tenderly calling. And whether it's baptism, church membership, salvation, whatever your decision would be, you let it be led of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you need to reconcile with a, with a kinfolk. 
And, and you don't need to talk about that with anybody but God right now. You get down on your knees and let God be the leader. Father, thank you for Matthew 26. God, take, take my feeble preaching and do more than I ever could have done. Lead us now in this time of decision. In Jesus I pray, amen.
But I, I had a chance to have known Savannah since she was a little girl. So I'm going to spend some time with these guys over the next couple of weeks and, uh, and affirm their decision to, uh, to be a part of this local church. And if you're excited about that, say amen. 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 We know that in the coming weeks, the local church will take care of the business side of that. What we want to take care of this morning is the love side of that. Amen. amen. So in a few moments, I, Savannah is nervous. Lord have mercy. <laughs> I, I told her, I said, I told her, I said, I'm going to make people come up and love on you. She said, oh, boy. <laughs> she seemed so excited. But, but you're going to do that, right? You're going to come by and, and you're going you're gonna to show some love to them. Somebody say amen. 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 We got a little daughter, Randy Lynn. How old is Randy Lynn, George? 17 months. 17 months. Praise God. She's back in the nursery. She's probably up one of the walls by now, right? <laughs> Having fun. Amen. So, um, if, if she's not... She's not today. She's not in nursery. We can't meet her today? Not today. Okay, she's with Grandma. Okay, she's with Grandma. You ain't going to get to meet her today. My bad. So you got to make sure to come up and meet George and Savannah. Don't forget, the way we're doing things now, the offer is at the door. That means uh, you got longer to dig for it before you get to it. Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for these who are listening to the Holy Spirit's call. Lord, welcome them into this local church. And they have been welcomed into the body of Christ by their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So may they be welcomed among his people. Bless this local church as you add to her and grow her for your glory and our own good. God calls us to give you the right value and to live a life 